Perfect. Uh, today, my guest is Professor Emanuela Pilaco Yanaki. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Emanuela as a person. Professor Pileko Yanaki is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Emanuela is the chair of the IB department at the University of Vienna. She is an associate editor at British Journal of Management and a senior editor at Management and Organization Review. Her research has received the 2021 Gibbs Decade Award. She received three best paper awards from the British Academy of Management in uh, 2021, 2018, and 2015. Uh, she has published over 30 articles in our top journals, such as uh, Gibbs British Journal of Management, Journal of Management Studies, Journal of World Business, Journal of Business Ethics, among others. In addition, she has contributed to more than 10 book chapters on research methods, and international entrepreneurship and, and, and management. Thank you, Emanuela, for, for joining us. Thank you so much, Ilkaz. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for your invitation. And thank you so much for organizing these wonderful interviews, which I feel it's a great contribution for international business. So thank you very much for your service. Thank you. I'm humbled. Thank you. Uh, Emanuela, what did you want to become when you were a child? Okay, that's not an easy question, I have to say. I don't think that when I was young, I have some sort of a professional model in mind. So I don't think that at that time in my early years, I said I wanted to be an academic, I wanted to be a doctor, but I had a lifestyle in mind. So I wanted to do something that related to reading books, uh, being surrounded by books having the opportunity to share ideas, to interact with people, having the opportunity to know better the world. I was very curious about the world. Uh, having the opportunity to be flexible. I'm not a person that has this everyday routine. I like flexibility in my life. And I think that at some point in my uh, high school years, everything started to fall into place. So I started thinking that I like doing research. I like studying, I am very much fascinated by learning things. And obviously this pointed me to my university years. And during my university studies, I realized that you know, becoming an academic is truly fascinating. So that was very much close to me and close to my dreams. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Thessaloniki in Greece. I was born in Athens, but when I was extremely young, my family moved to Thessaloniki. So I moved to Thessaloniki. I spent my high school years in Thessaloniki. I graduated from the State University of Thessaloniki. That's the Aristotle's University. It takes the name from the philosopher Aristotle. I hold a bachelor degree in economics. And then after my bachelor, I got a scholarship and I studied my PhD in the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, in UK. And how did you choose IB? I mean, I understand the scholarship part, the academic uh, pursuit, but how did you choose specifically uh, IB field? That's an interesting question because my PhD is actually in marketing. So I started working first in the area of marketing. I was very lucky because when I did my PhD in the UK, I did my PhD in a multinational company. 
the focus of my PhD was not international business. I was actually doing something in the interface of marketing and organizational behavior. But I was very much fascinated by the discourse of this company. So during the lunchtime meetings, you know, when I was taking breaks from my interviews, I used to hear people discussing about culture and the different cultures that they were actually planning to expand in the future or already the business was operating. And I used to hear discussions about how we manage the relationship between a mother firm and a subsidiary and how challenging or interesting can be this relationship. So I was very much fascinated with the overall area. And even though I pursued a PhD in marketing, I started sensitizing myself about aspects of international business. I was also in Strathclyde, as I said earlier on, and I was in Strathclyde in the beginning of 2000. So that was a very interesting momentum for the University of Strathclyde because we had the Strathclyde School of International Business. That was essentially a unit of researchers operating in the area of international business, led by the late professor Stephen Young and also the late professor Neil Hood. And Stephen Young and Neil Hood were amazing academics. They were role models for me. And even though I was in the area of marketing, I was very much indoctrinated by them in the area of international business. So I started collaborating with them and then my collaborations brought me in the area of international business. So I would say it was rather a process for me, an incremental process. It was not a choice from the beginning, but it was the trajectory of my academic studies that brought me into this fascinating area. Marketing's loss, ideas gained. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, that's, that's very nice. Thank you so much, Ekans. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Well, there are, yeah, my, my CV concentrates primarily on my professional life. Um, perhaps people do not know that in my early years when I was a student, I also used to work as a DJ on a national <laughs> radio station in Greece. And I also, I, I, I loved going to the movies. I like a lot stories and narratives. So I'm a visual person, but I also like narratives at the same time. So I also used to write in a local newspaper in Thessaloniki, and I was writing about cine cinematography. So I was writing actually film reviews. And, you know, this is something that I, I do not including my CV, but it has been a substantial part of my early, I would say, academic years as an undergraduate student. Another aspect that I do not include in my CV, but I like sharing it, you know, with my colleagues, you know, discussions in the classroom and so on, is that I take history of art courses. So I love art and I always like to explore interfaces between business and art. I, I see a lot of commonalities in the art world with the business world. And a few of the phenomena that we study in international business, for instance, how we internationalize, how we develop networks, how we innovate. I mean, we have wonderful examples from the, uh, with the world of art. So for instance, we see that artists has, have been working a lot in, in the context, you know, as networks, they have been developing networks. And we see artists such as Picasso and the movement of modernism that they have relied totally 
on the concept of creating a successful network. So I like bridging together these two worlds. It's very meaningful for me, and it's also very fun and interesting for me. I think we should enter. You, you, you should uh, write about your DJ experience on your CV. This is the coolest thing. Uh, the young uh, colleagues won't realize it, how the coolest people on earth were the DJs. <laughs> That's going to be my next addition in my CV. It Thank must you. be. It is the Thank coolest. Uh, okay. Uh, regrets. Any regrets in life? Okay. Regrets in life. Um, this is also, I think, a very thought-provoking question. Let me start by saying that I'm very grateful with my life. Um, in retrospect, I know that I could have done some things, you know, better. And there is always a learning process. Um, I would like to have more time, let's say, for my family, for myself, and so on. But I always consider that decisions are also taking place in a specific situational context. So with hindsight, I can say that I, I could have done some things differently, but also these things have engaged me in a learning process. So regrets, um, I, I, I tend to approach them more positively and consider them as opportunities to learn and move forward with things. Very nice. What is, uh, or what was the biggest failure uh, in your life and what did you learn from it? I think that at least in academia, I think all of us, we are very used to, to receiving rejections and experiencing failure in some sort of a way. And I think the way that I'm treating failure is first of all, um, to use it, as I said, as a learning process, uh, to, to use it as a way to improve myself. Uh, obviously I have failed and I have failed several times in my life, but um, I think I was becoming stronger or I was trying to, again, as I said, to learn out of it. Um, for me, failure is a learning process. It's becoming much more resilient. And obviously failure can, can perhaps teach you something about yourself, even how you deal with failure. And it shouldn't stop you from chasing your dreams. Uh, say, say you received a rejection from a journal. What do you do? What is the process for you? First of all, when I receive a rejection from a journal, usually, you know, I mean, this is obviously very, uh, very obvious in, in the letter because you have this a few lines saying that your work is very interesting, but unfortunately, and then the story comes. And what I would do is I will skim um, the letter I would say in a very fast manner, skim the letter, leave it rest for a couple of days, and then go back to the letter and read it thoroughly. And then go again, leave it for a couple of days, and then return to the rejection and see how now I can utilize this rejection to learn further. For me, it's always this state of connecting and disconnecting. I'm very much used to this process. As a qualitative scholar, for instance, when I collect my data, I always like to, to leave my data to rest. And then I go back to my data with a fresh eye. Connecting and disconnecting is helping me a lot in theorizing. But also connecting and disconnecting is helping me, me a lot in terms of seeing a rejection with a fresh eye 
and perhaps consider how this rejection is going to take forward my, my work. Obviously, there is an aspect of disappointment. I think that I was more emotional with rejections at the beginning of my academic career. Now I think I have developed a thick skin around rejections because I think rejections demonstrate another thing, that we are all out there and we are trying. I don't know academic, prolific academics who have never received a rejection. So it's part of the process. And for me, it's, I mean, the, the, the last few years, a rejection is the default state. So it's better to be out there and try to convey and communicate your work rather than not receiving any rejections. Because this might also suggest that we are not perhaps trying hard enough or we are not aiming high enough. So now I have a different philosophy in terms of dealing with rejection, something that I'm trying to communicate to my PhD students as well, that rejection once is hard, rejection twice is also hard, but after a point you become much more resilient and you some sort of, you know, have a better understanding that this is part of what we are doing. This was very helpful, thank you. Uh, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of um, the people that I have around me. So I'm very proud of my family. I'm very proud of my husband. I'm very proud of my nephew that he's actually now in Boston and he's doing his PhD in civil engineering. So I'm very proud of him. And also I'm very proud when I received emails from my students or messages from former students saying that, you know, they are in a good place and perhaps with my teaching, with some of my advice, with some of the discussion that we had, these discussions were very useful in their lives. So I'm also very, very proud of my students and I'm always very happy to hear from them. And I'm also proud of some of the things that I have achieved in my career. And I would share something with you, which it's something that I have achieved when I was extremely young. So I mentioned earlier on, once I have concluded my undergraduate studies, I went to the University of Strathclyde directly to have a PhD. And I got a scholarship from that, for that from the Greek State Foundation of Scholarships. Now for this scholarship, I had to sit for a national exam. And I was the only student in the entire Greek territory that received a scholarship to pursue a PhD in the area of marketing. I'm very proud of this achievement in, in my early academic life because it has actually changed my life totally. It opened new avenues for me, new ways to develop myself, and perhaps new journeys and adventures. Perfect. So, uh, Emanuela, how do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people who don't read uh, academic work regularly, who don't read Jeb's, uh, who are just laymen? Well, I'm not so sure that I would go to the nitty-gritty detail to discuss in terms of, you know, discuss deeper the phenomena or the variables that I'm actually utilizing in my work. But what I would say is that I'm very interested to understand how organizations are operating. And organizations are people. Organizations are families. So in families, we have relationships. We have moments of tension, moments of conflict, 
but we also have moments of glory. And what I'm trying to do with my research is try to understand how people are oper operating as a collective in terms of achieving some goals. And in a family, we do have family goals. We do have the, this collectivity, this collective spirit. And this is a similar situation in an organization. It's a different type of family. So I would use the family metaphor to convey what I'm doing because the family metaphor can be very familiar to many people. I would also perhaps use um, the story of my own life because part of my research relates to immigrant entrepreneurship. And I have also been an immigrant myself, moving from Greece to the UK and now to Austria, living and spending a year in Finland. So I would try to showcase from my life, my own trajectory in terms of, you know, following my journey, exposing myself into different situations, learning from different cultures, utilizing and considering these cultures as means to improve myself. So through this personal narrative, again, I would try to convey what I'm doing and what I'm studying with my own research. So using familiar ways and metaphors to, to, to communicate my work rather than you know, going to these very detailed accounts or obviously using jargon that only academics understand. So uh, about omitted variables, things that we have uh, neglected or we haven't studied enough, maybe we forgot about them, maybe we just um, don't do it anymore. What are some of the things that in IB we should be thinking more of so that the next five, 10 years of the field should be focused on, in your opinion, uh, what should be working on? More? I I'm fascinated that IB as a field is very dynamic. First of all, and is, we always have room for research. Um, I wouldn't say omitted variables, but I would say phenomena or aspects of phenomena that we can actually investigate. So for me, an aspect that requires further consideration is the role of context in international business. And what is context? As in, as, and as international business researchers, we should be very sensitive to context because essentially what we try to do is explain the behavior of the firms across context. But how do we define context? Is context uh, a control variable? Is context something which is stable or constant? Or is context uh, a set of situational factors which is dynamic, that has agency, that shapes a phenomenon? So I think that further investigation or further research could be done in terms of illuminating what context is, what context can be, and how context can shape international business phenomena. Perhaps moving from a monolithic understanding of context, that context is simply a container of things. So I think there is more room to contextualize, to consider contextualization in IB, to consider how we can develop theories and theorize in a way that we can more embed context in the explanation of the phenomenon. So this could be an avenue to consider. Another avenue that I'm very fascinated and I'm currently working on, and it's, it's truly a learning process for me, is the role of time in international business scholarship. So what is time? I mean, we study the process of internationalization. So internationalization as a phenomenon is a dynamic phenomenon. It unfolds in different phases. So how do we understand time in IP? And here we see that 
there is a massive discussion that it can take place. A discussion that starts, and if we want to go deeper, it starts with the philosophers in classical Greece, Plato and Aristotle discussed the concept of time, and then obviously going to, to prolific scientists such as Einstein, and then going to phenomenologists such as Heidegger and Hassel. But what is time? Is it possible to have a singular understanding of time? I think in ID it's very interesting to move beyond this objective notion of time, this view of time that it is external from the phenomenon that we are investigating, and consider time as an inherent part of, of humans. And in IB, we look at decision makers, and decision makers can have different conceptions and understanding of time, which this, these conceptions are reflected on the way that they strategize. And obviously, time, again, can be multidimensional, is not necessarily linear. And I think the last few years, we have even experienced that time can be perceived very different, differently, and it can be about disruptions. So we have been experiencing a pandemic that it has changed our experience of time. I think there is room to consider time and how we can perhaps incorporate time in the study of international business. In the last few years, we have this historical term in IB that can also provide a potential avenue to consider better time in the way that we study and explain IB phenomena. And there could be, I mean, now that we discuss about time, we can also discuss about space, and space is not necessarily the national context, but also space invites multiple interpretations, it can also be socially constructed and experienced. So there is room to deal with some of these principal issues that they can shape the way that we do research and we theorize in IB. And obviously, if we want to touch upon these important concepts and important issues, we might also need a new methodological lenses. So new methodologies that will allow us to be able to consider time, to critically think of space, to consider contextualization. So I think there is room for more critical thinking in IB, for more, I would say, um, paradigmatic challenging thinking in IB. About uh, new methodologies in IB, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of important things. I just want to follow up on one uh, thing. Do you believe that we need new methods for uh, the current or the new upcoming uh, IB problems? Or uh, is the existing method, what is wrong with the existing method? Uh, I think that while phenomena are changing and while phenomena are evolving, we also need to come up with new methodologies or new ways to actually use the current methodologies to be able to understand this phenomenon. So I mentioned earlier on the role of time, perhaps, you know, using more intensively historical methods and understanding how historical methods are operating can allow us to better consider the dynamics of change phenomena. 
Another approach to historical methods that I could think about in IP oftentimes we concentrate on the experiences of the individual entrepreneur, of the individual uh, decision maker, etc. And in and, and, and the last few years, we also have these calls that we really need to dig down to the micro foundations of international business. To this end, methodological approaches that go beyond the qualitative interview or more traditional perspectives, such as, for instance, projective, projective techniques, metaphor analysis, visual data, can provide us a better understanding of how individuals think and be able to tease out sometimes some tacit processes that they are very, very hard to verbalize if we're going to use a qualitative, a traditional qualitative interview or a questionnaire survey approach. So there is always room to become innovative and innovation here does not necessarily mean reinventing the wheel, but perhaps using methodologies in different ways or even importing methodologies from other disciplines. There is always room to understand better international business phenomena. And the last few years, we also have the discourse about the need to understand better and address uh, grand challenges, become much more sensitive in terms of these grand challenges. And also these grand challenges can push us to new ways of doing research. Obviously, we experienced the pandemic here and the pandemic has redefined the way that we do research, the way that we see ourselves as researchers. And this disruptive event also triggered new ways to think about data collection, new ways to establish relationships with our participants. So sometimes we can be reactive in terms of using methodologies by actually responding to challenges such as a COVID pandemic, but also we can be proactive in terms of thinking about methodologies, aspects such as multimodality, for instance, and utilize them in, better, in order to achieve better ways to understand international business phenomena. Thank you. Uh... About the evolution of the field, when you were a PhD student in uh, in UK, uh, what did you observe? Or how uh, how did, in your opinion, how did the evolution of the field uh, progress? What are uh, what are we losing along the way? What are we gaining along the way? Where are we headed to? I think that I want to be very positive and be. I'm, I'm always a positive person. So I would like to, to see um, that you know the field is actually evolving. This evolution is positive. Uh, we are able to have now the opportunity to be, I would say, more diverse in terms of the phenomena that we are actually investigating. So embrace more diversity in our research topics. It's always very nice to see that the discourse of international business has evolved throughout time from the emphasis of the multinational company and the multinational theory of the firm, we gradually see greater emphasis now placed on smaller players, on how a small company or a medium-sized company is internationalizing, of how a small or a micro family firm is internationalizing. The last few years, we have seen this notion of the micro multinational, which is the small firm that internationalizes beyond exporting. So 
So we see this evolution taking place in the field. We also see a gradual push for greater methodological pluralism. So again, diversifying the portfolio of methodologies that we use and obviously the different theories that we can develop. And I think this element of the methodological pluralism has been a very, very vivid discourse in the key, in the top tier international business journals the last few years. Along these lines, we also see greater diversity in terms of context. I think we can do better on that aspect. So gradually we see studies that they concentrate not only to, on the North American context or the Chinese context or the Indian context, but uh, we see some greater diversity in terms of national context. And obviously there is room towards this direction. There is room for improvement so that we can have more diverse context uh, represented in IB. So I would like to see a brighter future that essentially uh, we are able to deal with meaningful problems, with meaningful research questions that they can make an impact. This future includes by default more diversity. It can also relate to more interdisciplinary research where we essentially need to challenge silos and you know, cut across these boundaries and expand and connect with other disciplines. And I think as IB scholars, we should be also very open to this opportunity because inherently IB is a very, very eclectic uh, approach is a very eclectic discipline and we have an eclectic community as well. So I think we should be very open in terms of challenging these silos that exist with the purpose of advancing further the field. So the field is gradually becoming much more diverse, perhaps much more open to go beyond traditional problems and also concentrating on new global players or new players in this international environment. Thank you. Emanuela, uh, about uh, advice portion to junior faculty and PhD students, um, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the PhD program? The best advice I received was one step at a time. So one step at a time, that was an advice that I have received from Professor Stephen Young in 2000, 22 years ago. He said that Emanuela, if you want to engage in academia, academia is a long-term process. Concentrate on your long-term trajectory and take one thing you know at a time. Don't rush. It's about your sustainability in the field. It is about a marathon, running a marathon in the field. So this is what he said to me. And when I was a PhD student, you know, the youth, the passion of the youth, it seemed to me that I wanted to do everything, you know, in these three years of my PhD. So I was very passionate in terms of doing everything and try to learn everything and, and work and develop networks and so on. But then I, I realized that it's, it's a learning process. And it's a learning process that it is evolving. And we learn every day and I think this is really wonderful. Different, at different phases in our life, we also learn differently. So we should appreciate the moment, we should appreciate the step, the process, rather than rushing things and rather than concentrating only on the output. It's a process that essentially it's going to generate an output. 
So this is very much about the sustainability. Now I have been almost 22 years in academia and I have most probably 22 to 25 years to go. So it is important to, to, uh, to have my stamina, uh, to concentrate again on the trajectory, on the process, to avoid burnouts, to take it one step at a time, because in academia we go through phases, we have cycles, we have spirals, and each of these phases can have, you know, can enrich ourselves. And it can, obviously it can offer different experiences, different learning processes and different learning outcomes. So a step at a time, this is what I would say to, to an early career researcher as well. Don't try to do everything from your first year. This can be you know, dangerous even sometimes. Uh, move a step at a time, set some milestones in, in the process uh, try to have a long-term vision. For me, this long-term vision is always a motivator. And, you know, things, the process is there, things will happen. That's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, is the advice the same for mid-career people? I think mid-career people, um, I would still concentrate on this aspect that we are running a marathon because a mid-career colleague still has a few years uh, to invest in his career. So still, it's important to be resilient. It's important to be able to run a marathon. But obviously, when you are a mid-career researcher, a key aspect here is that you really need to be very demanding with the outputs that you produce. You really need to aim high. There are many mid-career people that sometimes they are stuck in the middle because perhaps they are not aiming high enough or perhaps they are hesitant or they might be lacking the aspiration to move forward. So for me, for a mid-career researcher, it's extremely important to make the step. Don't expect that you feel ready to make the step. We never feel ready to take more risky steps, but it is important, it is time to stand out, expose yourself, um, take risks about your own research, about your own scholarship, engage in more provocative topic, in more provocative debates, and then obviously capitalize on this. Thank you. Emanuela, uh, I just realized the time. For the sake of time, uh, what is the question that I should have asked you but haven't? I think that, first of all, I would like to thank you for asking me all these insightful questions. Thanks. Because it's a great learning process for me to be able to reflect on things that I have done and also reflect on things that I can improve and obviously reflect on the future. Um, regarding the question that you could have asked me, I can think of many actually. <laughs> um, perhaps, uh, you know, we mentioned that academia is, is very competitive. How we can survive this academic environment that it is rather competitive. It, it is always about people. I always used to say that it's wonderful to have a team. It's always, it takes two to tango. So academia is a wonderful venue to work collectively and learn from each other. So perhaps one secret in terms of, you know, surviving the competitive environment of academia is uh, having good collaborations. And obviously doing stuff 
that you enjoy doing. I cannot imagine working on a project that I don't really like the project. So if you, uh, you enjoy the people, the camaraderie, and if you enjoy the project, then you might have the seeds for something good to happen. This was uh, very interesting for me, very helpful. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you so much, Emilio. Thank you so much, Ilkaz. Thank you for the invitation. And again, it was wonderful to have this discussion with you. Thank you. Thanks.